Well, his birth was a miracle from heaven. He was a man who had divine origins, was human, but also hailed as the son of God. It was believed that he was God incarnate. God and humanity crashed together. They called him Lord, Redeemer, Liberator, and Savior of the world. He was revered so much that his birthday became a holiday. In religious circles, he was worthy to be worshipped and praised, celebrated as the hope of peace on earth. And his name is Caesar Augustus, the Roman Empire. And these are titles that if you're in church every year, you come at Christmas time, and, and even if that's the only time you come, you might hear some of those things and say, don't we say all those things about Jesus? And yes, we do say all of those things about Jesus. They're true of Jesus. But before they were true of Jesus, they were true of Caesar Augustus, the emperor uh, of the Roman Empire. At Christmas, we celebrate that Jesus uh, came to inaugurate the kingdom of God. But you need to know that the Christmas stories are not kind of nice, sentimental fairy tales. They are high treason. We're going through this series we're calling When God Speaks, and we're asking the question, if God would speak to us this Christmas, what do you think he would say? And I hope that God will speak to us. I hope God will speak to you. I hope there'll be times maybe where you can have some quiet moments, even this week as we come in the last week before Christmas, uh, where you can just stop and you can ponder and think about the message of Christmas, the stories that we talk about here, maybe that you'll read on your own, and ask how God would speak to you. But during this series, one of the things we're doing is we're asking ourselves, uh, what did God say in the birth of Jesus, the the word to the world? Uh, What is the message that, that came to the original audience when Jesus was born? And part of what we are discovering is that the context, the historical context, actually shows that that there's a profound and even dangerous, threatening message in the message of Jesus and his birth. And today we want to look at the reality that the birth story of Jesus is a counter-narrative or a a counter-story to the, the story of Rome, the empire, and how it was born, and specifically to Caesar Augustus. In the Roman Empire, actually the the founding of the Roman Empire had been a republic. Um, There's a a major story that kind of moves into uh, the birth of the Roman Empire that kind of goes like this. There had been civil war amongst the people. There had been a bunch of leaders. They were all fighting against each other. They were all trying to become the one who was in charge, the one who was going to lead. And there were different factions and different people. And everybody was fighting against everybody, um, trying to vie for power. There were decades of this kind of civil war that was happening among the people. Finally, there was this great battle, the Battle of Actium, and it happened mostly on water in boats. And uh, what had happened is Mark Antony and Cleopatra had an alliance. And so if you're a history buff, you might recognize those names. Uh, They had joined together Cleopatra from Egypt. She was wealthy. She was able to help uh, pay for the troops and for the war. And uh, Mark Antony... um, was aligned with her. At one point, there was another leader named Octavian, and he was also aligned with them, but then they split, and they started fighting each other. And at Actium, everything, this very violent time of civil war, kind of came together. This is 31 years uh, BCE, um, and Octavian was winning, and it, they realized he was going to win. Uh, he was going to win the, the battle. He defeats Mark Anthony and Cleopatra, and uh, they flee, and they go and commit suicide because they know that they have lost. And Octavian wins the day, and he proclaims that when he does that, he brings peace to the people, and the way that he does it is by victory. That's Rome's uh, way of doing things. They win, and the winners are at peace. 
His name would soon be changed to Augustus, the emperor, or the victor, the one who had won. And the way that he won was by destroying his enemies. There are legends at the time of this battle after he won. And one of them is that he went back to his boat. Remember, most of this battle was fought on water in the boats. And the god Apollo appears to him and at that time gives him the title Savior of the World. He had won and he had saved his people from the war, from the violence. His ancestor was Julius Caesar. Um, and by the way, if you look at the, you know, everybody's called Julius Caesar, so it's very confusing. But Julius Caesar uh, is his great uncle. And after Julius Caesar had died, he was deified. So the people actually uh, elevated him to the status of God. And uh, Julius Caesar had adopted Octavian, who becomes... Uh, Julius Caesar, Augustus, there's like all these names, it's very confusing. Anyway, because his adopted father, Julius Caesar, uh, was a god, he then became son of God. And that became a title that they gave him, emperor or son of God. His father, Julius Caesar, posthumously given divine status, making Caesar Augustus the son of God. In fact, when they had to figure out how to pay the soldiers, and some of them that they had now taken Cleopatra's and Mark Antony's soldiers, and they had not been paid because their leaders had gone off, uh, they had coins minted. And we found these, archaeologists have found these and brought them up. And there's all kinds of different coins from this time and place in the world. And there's a bunch of them, which on one side, there is Caesar. And on the other side, you have one of three uh, goddesses. One is Pax, which means peace. And Pax was simply peace. This is what you fight for. And when you win, this is what you get. One of them was Venus. We talked about Venus last week. Uh, Was seen as the morning star that guided the soldiers and the leaders in battle and helped them win. And then the other goddess was Victoria, which simply means the victor, which is uh, we win. We win. That's how we do it. So here is, and then on the other side, you have Caesar and the inscription, son of God. The point is, anyone on this coin is, is divine, is a god in a sense. The message of Rome went like this. Because after that, that battle, then the Republic becomes the Empire of Rome, eventually become basically the superpower of the world, the strongest army anybody knows of. Uh, they kind of run the show. And here is the message of Rome. Again, you can read the history books and find this out. Here's how they operate. Here's how they, they get what they want. They start with religion. They start with, as I said, all of these gods. So uh, we have Venus, and we have Pax, and we have Victoria, and we have Caesar. And if the gods are with us, if we know that the gods are on our side, then we can be confident that we can go to war. Because if our religion tells us we're going to be winners, gods are with us, they're going to fight for us, we can be confident and go to war. We know that we're going to win, we're going to have victory. And hey, if you want a little bit of evidence, uh, some proof, just look at Actium, and now we've won, and we're the superpower of the world. And when we win, We bring peace. Caesar brings peace. He's the savior of the world. And yet, for others, you can imagine, like the Jewish people, this was not peace, but oppression. When our religion, our gods fight for us, and therefore against somebody else, gives us confidence, we can go to war, and we can win, and we can be at peace. But what that means is we have defeated someone else. We've used violence Uh, tyranny, oppression. We have pushed people down. They are the losers of history. They are the ones we don't talk about. Our victory is simply ours, and that is how we're going to go through life. That's how we're going to win. And Caesar Augustus had, had one of the longest periods of peace in Rome that there was, and they got it through this victory, peace through victorious, uh, 
victory in war. But what that meant for others, again, was death, slavery, persecution, violence, and peace through war is always just a lull. The war stops, but only for so long, until there's another empire, until there's another superpower, until there's another army that would come against the one that currently is leading and fight for their people, oftentimes under the guise of their gods or goddesses that will lead them into victory. So for the Jews, it meant oppression. And that is uh, essentially the context of the story of Jesus. And so now we're going to read from the Gospel of Luke. And as we read through the Gospel of Luke and notice some of those similar titles or titles that would combat some of the things that we've just talked about in terms of Caesar, we realize these are powerful stories where God is speaking um, very directly into a certain culture and calling people to choose. As we looked at last week, who do you believe is king? Who do you believe uh, is ultimately in charge? Who will you follow? What kingdom will you be part of? There's Rome. And there's the kingdom of God that Jesus announces. So we'll look at Luke chapter 2 this week, and much of what we're going to hear now is going to tell us about what kind of kingdom and what kind of king uh, Jesus is to be. It says, uh, at that time, the Roman emperor, Augustus, we just heard all about Augustus. So this is uh, the very beginning of the gospel of Luke. These are people that would have understood that history, known the stories, known the legends, known all about that. We are brought up a little bit up to speed on that uh, to join. Why would you even mention the Roman emperor, Augustus, because of all those reasons we just talked about. We know that he is the emperor, and yet now we're going to have the story of another king. But Augustus decreed that a census should be taken throughout the Roman Empire. This was the first census taken when Quirinius was governor of Syria. All returned to their own ancestral towns to register for the census. And because Joseph was a descendant of King David, he had to go to Bethlehem in Judea, David's ancient home. He traveled there from the village of Nazareth in Galilee. He took with him Mary, to whom he was engaged, who was now expecting a child. And while they were there, the time came for her baby to be born. She gave birth to her firstborn son. She wrapped him snugly in strips of cloth and laid him in a manger because there was no lodging available for them. So we've mentioned Caesar Augustus. Uh, The reason, by the way, that an emperor uh, or anyone would have a census is about taxes. And so when it says that he had, uh, he had this census and everybody would have had to go to their hometown, it's because you've got to show where you're from and what family you're part of, and everybody gets counted, it's because they're going to take your money. And nobody likes taxes, and the Roman Empire would have been notorious for taking too much taxes from people like the Jews. And so again, when you read this story, this isn't just a nice little detail, this is, here is Caesar Augustus doing whatever he's going to want to do, and he's going to take whatever he's going to take, and he's going to use it to fund his armies and his kingdom and his riches and all that goes with it. So this is not a little innocuous detail at the beginning. This is a reminder of who everybody says in charge and what he can do to you and what he can take from you. They are going to be taxed on this. And then we have some details that help us understand a little bit of of what's happening. Just little things. So so Joseph, it says in verse 4, is a descendant of King David. You go, oh, the descendant of a king. Well, that's one of the ways you become a king is you have to be in the line of a king. And so now we realize we're reading a bit of a royal story, the story of the birth of a king, perhaps. Remember King David, one of the greatest kings, hailed as one of the greatest kings of the Jewish people. And now here is Joseph in his line. He goes to Bethlehem. That's where he's from. That is part of the lineage of King David. They travel and find uh, that they go uh, and there's no lodging available to them. Uh, Some of translations say there was no room in the inn. 
I don't know how many of you as kids were like me and you got to be the innkeeper in the Christmas pageant. Anybody out there got to be the innkeeper? Nobody here got to be the innkeeper? I was the innkeeper. Oh, somebody's pointing to someone else. Ah, they don't want to admit it. I saw that. I was the innkeeper once, and uh, actually right on this stage, I was a kid, there was a little room here, and I had a door, and uh, when this time came, they come, and I had to step out and go, there's no room in the inn. Deliver my line and go back in. That was it, and I crushed it. Nailed it. It was just perfect. There's no innkeeper in the Christmas story. Hate to tell you that. In fact, there probably is not an inn at all. The word here that oftentimes is translated, there's no room for, uh, for them in the inn. There's actually uh, another word in Greek that is used later uh, that talks about uh, a public inn, uh, someplace people could go and rent a room, rent lodgings. And we actually read about that in the, the parable of um, the Good Samaritan. Do you remember the, the parable? The Good Samaritan takes this guy who's been beaten and he takes him to an inn someplace and then he pays the, the, the fee for him to go there. The word here is not for that. It's actually probably the same, it's the same word that is used later when Jesus has uh, his last supper with his disciples in what we call the upper room. And the word actually refers to a room in a house of a normal person or family uh, at this time where they would have probably had a kind of elevated, basically it's a guest room or a room that you would put people in that were visiting. And the point here is not that, oh, you know, here they are in Bethlehem and the place is packed and we go to the hotel and it's full. The point is everybody's coming and they're staying with family. This is a culture that would have prized hospitality. It would have been unthinkable that anybody family-wise would have not let Mary and Joseph come in to stay. And so what they're saying here is, but they get there and the upper room, the guest room is already taken. Probably other family are there because of the census. So it is very busy. It is very packed. And so instead they go down probably to the room. In a lot of these houses, you would have had an elevated back pretty open with like a living room and the family room and this room I've just been talking about. That's full. Somebody's staying there. And then there would have been a lower room and this would have been used, especially when it got cold, maybe sometimes you would bring in the animals and the animals would be able to come in from the elements and there was often something like a manger or feeding trough that was built right in to it so that when your animals came in, you could feed. And so what is actually being said here is they probably come to family and go, wow, it's a packed house and the guest room uh, is full. But of course you can come in. Actually, what we should think is that it's not that nobody wants them and they have to go to a barn. It's that actually they're probably surrounded by family. Very ordinary, regular, not rich, not wealthy, just ordinary people that bring them in. And all around them is family. It's so packed. The house is packed. But yes, of course, there is space for you here in your family. Jesus will not be born. There's not space for Jesus in the empire. He will not be born in a palace. He will not be born uh, where the kings are. He will not be born among uh, the royal elites. He will be born among just his common, everyday family. Nothing special. But here he is, where they find room for him, where animals would be brought in from the cold and where the manger would be. And you would say, hey, if we're going to put him somewhere, we're going to put him. Well, there's a spot. Verse 8 says, That night there were shepherds staying in the fields nearby, guarding their flocks of sheep. Suddenly an angel of the Lord appeared among them, and the radiance of the Lord's glory surrounded them. They were terrified. But the angel reassured them, Don't be afraid, he said. I bring you good news that will bring great joy to all people. The Savior, yes, the Messiah, the Lord, has been born today in Bethlehem, the city of David. And you will recognize him by this sign. You will find a baby wrapped in, snugly in strips of cloth, lying in a manger. And suddenly the angel was joined by a vast host of others, the armies of heaven, praising God and saying, Glory to God in highest heaven and peace on earth to those with whom God is pleased. 
So if Jesus is born amongst a very, uh, a very ordinary family in an ordinary family house now, um, the gospel is proclaimed, the good news is proclaimed to the shepherds. Shepherds in this culture are outcasts. They have a very dirty job. They don't have a good reputation. Um, they are the people who kind of are stuck out there to go follow and take care of the sheep. It's dangerous. Nobody really wants to do that job. Uh, they would have to tend to animals that sometimes would be injured or even killed, which means that being around these animals probably most of the time prohibited them from certain aspects of worship in the temple. And so they were kept at a distance because they were quote unquote unclean. They were not popular. They were not wealthy. They were not well-liked, and yet here is the good news announced to them. Don't be afraid. I bring you good news. That'll be great joy. This is such a great moment. So the good news, what's that all about? Good news, which we translate gospel, was actually originally, it was not a church term or religious term. It was a military term declaring victory. Interesting. So they did not have news feeds and social media and the internet and you find about, out about everything that's happening in the world in two seconds because it's all over the place, the news would have traveled significantly slower. And so if you were part of a people that were at war, part of a battle, think of Caesar Augustus who goes out into fight at Actium and you're sitting at home waiting to find out who wins, who's in charge, uh, is it still going to be Caesar? Is it going to be somebody else? Who am I supposed to be following? Then one day somebody would show up. They would send somebody from the battle when it was over ahead of all the troops and the leaders and they would come with a gospel. They would come with good news. It was a military term declaring victory. Hey, so-and-so has won and that is who now in charge. Caesar Augustus has been victorious. He is now the leader of the Roman Empire. It has begun. The angels are out there to the shepherds that nobody would have expected a great announcement to announce their gospel, their good news of victory. Not Caesar Augustus, but instead something that none of us would really be afraid of. But now you understand the power of some of these titles. Good news that will bring great joy to all people. So by the way, not just one group of people, which was normal. Our gods fight for us and against everybody else. And if we win, we're in charge and they are oppressed. But here we have great joy to all the people. This is uh, just a little inkling of the universal victory of Jesus in the world. He's the Savior, yes, the Messiah, the Lord. So now remember these titles. These titles aren't just, oh, whatever, this is a nice thing to sing at Christmas time. The Savior of the world, the Messiah, would have been a Jewish, the anointed one, a Jewish title for the king or the, the anointed one. And you have the Lord. And you say, are these sort of generic titles that could be used for anybody? They sort of could be. There'd be multiple leaders throughout history that you would, they would have called Lord, for example. But at this point in history, it would have been extremely poignant what they're referring to and who they're referring to. That if Jesus is Lord, Caesar is not Lord. So think of it, uh, maybe the most famous example for us that we could think of, think of back to World War II. If in that time period or just after that time period or just you know, right in the middle of the war, if you called someone the Fuhrer, now you could say, well, weren't there a bunch of Fuhrers in history and stuff? And you go, yeah, on the one hand, there were. Except if you're in the 1940s, especially the first half, the Fuhrer everybody knows is Hitler. If you call somebody else the Fuhrer, you know what you're doing and they know what you're doing. You're saying, this is our leader, not him. We're following this person, not them. When we have these titles of the Savior, the Lord, these generic a little bit, but also they are direct at Caesar, 
Caesar's not the savior of the world. Caesar is not our Lord. Jesus is now the Lord. And then you have, and, and with all of that, you know, this, this great king in the lineage of the Jewish king, David, and how are you going to recognize him? The sign. A sign is something that points us to a reality. So in this sign, there will be something that tells us what this reality is about. What's the reality of this kingdom? What's the reality of this king? You're going to find him where? In the palace. You're going to find him surrounded by royalty. You're going to find him with riches. You're going to find him famous. Instead, you're going to find this baby wrapped snugly in strips of cloth, lying in a manger, in the family home, surrounded probably by his family, just humble, in the manger. The guest room was already full. They found room for him. The Roman Empire had no room for him, but his family had room for him. And here he is, this ordinary even born to probably poor parents. That's where you'll find him. And that will be the sign because that will tell you a lot about the kingdom of Jesus, about the kingdom of God and what you should expect from it. That you should expect something different from the Roman Empire, which is powerful and wealthy, which is oppressive and wins peace through victory and violence. Now, of course, if you're going to go up against Caesar Augustus and you're going to go up against the superpower of the world who had the strongest army anybody had ever known of, you're going to need your own army. And so how are they going to fight? Well, of course, in verse 13, it tells us, suddenly the angel was joined by a vast host of others, the armies of heaven, praising God and saying, glory to God in the highest heaven and peace on earth to those whom God is pleased. Sometimes the heavenly host, it means a heavenly army. But what is this army like? It's not the army that fights with weapons of this world, with violence. It is a heavenly army. It's the angels. It's the messenger, messengers of God who come and proclaim a different message, a real message of peace. Not fighting against, but fighting for the people that God loves. A kingdom that would come a completely different way. Not a religion that allows you to be confident in war and violence, but one that is true peace and love, of humility, of authenticity, and it's good news of great joy for all people. It's beautiful. And so the shepherds hear this and they go and they find the baby and they find, you know, you read in the next few verses that all these things that were announced to them, they go and they see it. This is the sign. Oh, we're understanding. And this is uh, the baby Jesus. And it says that um, in verse 18, all who heard the shepherd's story were astonished. They were so amazed. That sounds crazy. That sounds amazing. But in verse 19, but Mary, mother of Jesus, kept all these things in her heart and thought about them often. In other translations, it says something like, she uh, pondered them and treasured them in her heart. Or in one translation, it says that she took this, this message and all that goes with it, and she thought about it and connected all the dots. Hmm, it's interesting. What does all this mean? What, what about all these titles? What about these angels? What about these shepherds? What about my child being born in this humble place? What does all of this mean? Um, it struck me this weekend, <clears throat> struck me this weekend, we're a week away from Christmas, I guess eight days till Christmas Day, one week till Christmas Eve, 
And we often talk about how fast Christmas season goes. And I, I really felt that this weekend. Like all of a sudden, wow, we're one week away. And there's all these things I love about the traditions of Christmas and that I want to do and Christmas movies I want to watch and getting in the spirit and enjoying all the things. And all of a sudden I was just thinking, I hope in the next eight days things slow down a little bit because it's gone so fast. And I don't want to miss out on all these traditions and the feelings because in eight days it's going to come and then it's going to go. And like every year, we're going to look back and go, wow, it came so fast. And then I was thinking, about my kids. My kids for weeks have been like, how long till Christmas? How long till Christmas? And we'd be like, well, you know, beginning of December is 25 days, so three and a half weeks. Oh, that's way too long. And we go up, oh, it's three weeks away. Oh, it's one week away. And even now, today, oh, it's eight days away. And they're like, eight days is an eternity. You're kidding me. I have to wait. And I've been thinking about how is it that we go from being a kid where Christmas seems like it takes forever to come. We're just waiting and waiting and waiting to then we go to adults and, and we, all we can say is it's coming so fast. It's going so fast. Oh, it's already here. And then the week after we go, it's gone. I can't believe it. What makes the switch? I don't know fully. There's probably a bunch of answers. There's probably some psychological things. I don't know. But one of it I was thinking was probably because kids are always uh, thinking about what they're going to get, what they're going to receive, right? I want presents. What's going to be under the tree? What am I going to get? You know, is, is grandma and grandpa going to come and give me presents? What are my parents getting? All that kind of stuff. Santa's going to arrive. I just want to receive, receive, receive. And that feels like it takes forever. And as adults, we're often on the side of there's so much to do. I got to buy all the presents. I got to prepare the dinner. I got to get my house ready for guests that are coming. I got to do, do, do. We're running to pageants and, and, and plays and musicals and all these different things at Christmas. And it's just busy, busy, busy. And I wonder if even this week might be an opportunity for many of us. And I know this might sound a little bit selfish, but I'm going to suggest it anyways, to be a little bit like Mary and to sit and just ponder and to ponder all that God has given us this season. And maybe for you, not somebody to tell you, but for you to put some of the dots together and figure out what some of those things are. Maybe that's one of the ways God will speak to you this Christmas is in quiet, maybe early in the morning or after the kids have gone to bed, or maybe there's a time during the day and you can find and slow down. Maybe read some of these stories over again fresh and just sit quietly and ponder and treasure it. Oh, I treasure this new kingdom that comes in a different way, not through, not through wealth and violence and power and strength, but through humility and love to ordinary people, regular people, outcast people like the shepherds. This is good news of great joy for all the people. This is good news. If you went back a chapter, Mary also has a very famous song. It's called The Magnificat, and it's actually, it's mostly ripped off. She mostly stole it from Hannah's song, which is in the book of 1 Samuel, chapter 2. All the themes are there, but it's a great it's a great song, and it's when it was announced that she was pregnant with Jesus, and the angel had told her about, you know, who he's going to be and all that kind of stuff, and, and this, is, this is the song that comes out. And um, it is such a powerful song that there have been throughout history, not even that long, pretty recent history, that entire governments of entire nations have banned it from being publicly read or sung or in read in public liturgies in churches at Christmas time. Because as they read through it, they believe that if people actually thought these things and believed them, they would become revolutionaries. They would overthrow governance, governments. So places like uh, Guatemala and India, at different times, their governments, even recently, the past handful of decades, 
have banned this from being read, what Mary says, the one who treasured and pondered these things and all of what this meant, this new emperor, in a sense, this new king, and what he represented. It was so dangerous. It was so threatening that they said, we don't even want it read because if people believed these words and believed it applied to them and how they lived, they would overthrow governments. It's called the Magnificent because in the first line, it says, my soul magnifies the Lord. And that's what the Magnificent means. It means to magnify. Let me read it for you. Mary said, my soul magnifies the Lord. Caesar? Not Caesar. And my spirit rejoices in God, my Savior. Caesar? Not Caesar. For he has looked on the humble estate of his servant. For behold, from now on, all generations will call me blessed. For he who is mighty has done great things for me, and holy is his name. And his mercy is for those who fear him from generation to generation. He has shown strength with his arm. He has scattered the proud in the thoughts of their hearts. He has brought down the mighty from their thrones and exalted those of humble estates. That is, he has brought down the leaders, the emperors, the kings, the dictators. He's brought them down and taken them off their thrones. And then he's lifted up, exalted, those of humble estate. He has filled the hungry with good things, and the rich he has sent away empty. He has helped his servant Israel in remembrance of his mercy, as he spoke to our fathers, to Abraham and to his offspring forever. As he spoke to our fathers, to Abraham and to his offspring forever. If God could speak to us this Christmas, what do you think he would say? One of the things he would say he has said is, I have good news of great joy for all people. The Lord, the Savior is born. Not Caesar, fill in the the blank. Not, but Jesus. The one who comes to exalt the humble and even to take down uh, the powerful, the rich, and to care for those who are poor. And that's the good news. The good news of Caesar, and he had good news. He used the same term, good news of Caesar. The good news of Caesar is good news for the strong and the victorious, but the good news of Jesus is good for the humble and the hungry. He's come for the hurting, for the lowly, for those who don't have enough. This is the good news, not peace through victory and domination, but peace from below. Peace by coming to meet us where we are and to giving himself. Take some time this week to ponder that and to treasure it especially where you feel broken, where you feel like an outcast, where you feel hurt, where you feel like you're not good enough. Perhaps even this Christmas where you feel like you don't have enough. And then I want us to ask this question. As a church, as people who follow Jesus, who are we good news for? As we celebrate the good news of Jesus, a different kind of kingdom, who is it that will say, wow, it's good news that those people are part of our city. It's good news that those people invited me to their church. It's good news that 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 church moved into our neighborhood. It's good news that this church existed. The outcasts, those who don't have enough, this is who is good. Jesus' good news is good news for. I read something uh, a couple of weeks ago that really stuck with me. Someone wrote that Christmas is a magnifier. And uh, that stuck with me, because think about it for a second, that, that things are really magnified at Christmas time. So good things are magnified. We have bigger parties, we eat bigger meals, 
you know, if you're happy and, and your family is, is in a good spot, then you get everybody together and it's even better and everything is great. You have wonderful celebrations and it's a fantastic time of year. The flip side is also true though, right? If you're lonely, Christmas seems even lonelier. If you're feeling a financial pinch, Christmas can feel like even a tougher time. If you're having relational struggles with people that you love, people in your family, and that's hard, then it comes to Christmas and you're either not together or it's really hard to be together. Those things get magnified as well. That's why Mary's song is so powerful. Remember, it's called the Magnificat, the Magnifier. My soul magnifies the Lord. I want to make Jesus bigger and bigger and bigger in my life. That's a great opportunity. So... What do we need to magnify this Christmas? If we're magnifying the Lord, if we're magnifying Jesus, if he's coming bigger, what else needs to get bigger in our lives? I'll let you answer the question. Some suggestions might be, we need a bigger table. We need to get a bigger table for our celebration so we can invite people who maybe don't have a place to celebrate, don't have family around, who might be lonely. Maybe we could be just one way of showing God's love to them by, by asking them to come up. For many of us, it's increasing our generosity at Christmas time to realizing that God's great, given us this great, great gift and all the gifts that come with Jesus. And we have an opportunity to take what we have materially and to give it to his kingdom works and to the things that God is doing all around us. And we would, by the way, there's tons of really great places to donate to at the end of the year. I think you know that. We would be honored if you would consider our Christmas fund, if that's the case, as we just invest in what we believe is kingdom initiatives uh, at church and, and outside of the church and people in our community that are in need, a number of things. And you can check that out. We've talked a lot about it. And then maybe uh, lastly, I would just encourage you um, to increase your capacity um, to invite this Christmas. So next Sunday is our Christmas Eve service, and um, we are, at this point, I think here in Hamilton, uh, our services at 1 and 3 are somewhere around 80% full on registration. Uh, 5 o'clock is maybe 60-65%. Uh, in Burlington, that number is getting higher, closer and closer to, to half full and more. I would love for us, starting today, to be really praying about who we could invite to come to that service. Because at that service, what we want to do, more than probably any time of the year, easiest time of year, is to make this a place where you can bring friends and family who don't normally come to church, and we can proclaim to them good news. Good news of Jesus. Good news in a world where we still often prize and put on the throne uh, wealth and power and strength, where we can proclaim that at Christmas time, God offers us something different. He offers us grace and faithfulness and his presence in our lives. And I would love for uh, so many of our friends and family to hear that message, and maybe it's just one step in their journey of faith. And so uh, I want to encourage you to make an invitation this week. Number one, here's a couple of steps. Number one, start praying for who those people might be. Maybe it's a coworker, maybe it's somebody in your family, maybe it's a neighbor, I don't know, just pray. Maybe God will put somebody on your heart in order to invite. And then I know it's super hard to invite people. And we had Matt a couple of weeks up here talking about that. And, uh, you know, it could be hard to be rejected or, or to feel awkward. There's tons of reasons. He did a great job talking about that. Um, so I want to give you a cue. Here's your cue to invite somebody. So you're praying, God, put somebody on my heart. I want to invite them. I want to share good news this Christmas. Here's your cue. And you're going to get this cue probably a number of times in the next week. So you'll get it. When somebody says, hey, what are you doing for Christmas? Tons of people are going to ask you that. Oh, amazing. Okay, we're having some family over Christmas Day. We're having a big turkey, blah, 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 blah. Oh, by the way, I want to say, one of the things I'm really excited is my church puts on this service. We sing a lot of carols. It's kid-friendly. There's a bunch of stuff for kids. There's going to be a photo booth and some hot drinks and stuff. It's become a tradition for me and my family. 
how would you like to come with us? We'd love for you to join us. See, that's simple. And maybe they say, oh, we're super busy at Christmas, can't do it. And you say, that's okay, see you in the new year. But for you just to put out the invitation, know how powerful it can be. Grab one of these cards on your way out, um, take it with you, put it in your coat pocket or in the glove compartment of your car, and just be ready, be praying, and then wait for the queue. What are you doing for Christmas? Oh, that's amazing. Uh, just me and the kids on, on, on Christmas morning. But on Christmas Eve, we'd love for you to join us. This awesome service at our church. I can help you get free tickets right here. Okay. <laughs> Easy. Easy, beautiful. What if the remaining percentages of seats that we have available were filled up with people that we just wanted to proclaim good news to, that maybe desperately need to hear at this Christmas, need to know that they're loved, need to know that people care about them, and ultimately that God cares about them so much that he stepped into the world and into their lives to show them so. It's good news, and it's different from anywhere else in the world. So let's go proclaim it. Heavenly Father, we thank you for these powerful messages. We just want to pray that as we ponder and think about Uh, the incarnation of Jesus. We think about the reality that you came to us into our world. Uh, We think of people who may be right now that we love so much and we would love them to know how much you love them. This week, I pray that there would be a powerful movement, that there would be a movement in our, inside of us, in our hearts, to, to move outwards and to, to give some of these invitations. We pray for re- receptivity in those people's lives and that, uh, they might just say, yeah, I want to come. And we pray that, that next Sunday, as we celebrate and, and as we once again just sing these carols and we're reminded of the Christmas stories and the readings, that your good news, really good news, great news, all people would be proclaimed and that it would change lives, that it would change us again freshly anew. And that perhaps for the very first time, it would change other people's lives who, who need to know you, need to know how much you love them. And so we pray that your spirit would do what we cannot do without you. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.